thank you, Bailey, Amy, Ben, for sharing some testimonies of grace this morning, of God's goodness and kindness. You know, now that Thanksgiving is over, the day, uh, we have entered upon the Christmas season. And I would imagine, well, let me just ask, how many of you did Black Friday shopping? I just want to let you know I think you're weird. I have never done that, nor do I have any interest whatsoever in getting up at that time of the morning. I don't care what kind of savings there is. To me, it's not worth it, but yay for you. <laughs> um, but I'm sure you know the irony of Thanksgiving and then Black Friday has, has fallen upon all of us, where we realize on Thanksgiving Day we are thankful and content, and then somehow in those eight hours of the night or less, we have transferred from being content to, what can I get? And what do we need in order to be happier? But you know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make you feel bad for getting gifts. I mean, I like getting gifts for people, and I honestly, I love receiving gifts too. I love this season of Christmas time, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that per se. Having said that, I think for those who follow Christ, there is a danger that lurks in this season, and not only in this season, but in all seasons. But I think that in this season especially, we can end up, we can end up becoming more focused on gifts than we are on the giver of those gifts. And I think that that's the greatest travesty of all. You think about the song that we sang earlier, you give and take away, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. I mean, those words are beautiful to sing, but when you experience God taking away, what is your response? I still remember the funeral of the nine-month-old stillborn where the father is carrying this tiny casket up to the front and then we all sang that song. And the dad and the mom saying, blessed be your name. How is God still glorious when he allows a child to be taken away? I myself have personally struggled at times with God's goodness through the years. And many of you know this, but I deal with chronic physical pain. And I have ups and I have downs. I have some days or weeks even where I am praising God and I am content in him. And then for whatever reason, I go down and I'm literally weeping and wondering if this is going to be the rest of my life. And if it is going to be the rest of my life, how is God good? How is he really good? How is God satisfying if he allows consistent pain? And if he takes away your ability to wrestle with your kids on the floor or go on family bike rides or exercise even? And many of you know this too. I don't only have joint issues, but... 
other types of physical ailments. And I've gone to all sorts of specialists. And I have tried and continue to try even alternative methods. And so in saying all of this, I'm, I'm not asking for more advice. I've probably heard it. Okay. Over the years, God has continued to settle my heart at times with essentially the idea, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. But then something happened this past summer. Many of you are aware that my family went on a, a vacation to Florida for a family vacation. My children, they'd never seen the ocean. We were very excited. We don't do things like that. We don't take big trips like that. And while there was a lot of driving, uh, we were looking forward to it. And literally, the day we arrived at our hotel, literally the moment, and when I'm saying literally, I'm meaning literally, the moment I stepped foot onto the pavement, ouch, that hurts. I walk into the hotel, check in, pain, get our stuff out, still in pain, limping, get up to our room. Man, what in the world? Well, it's, hopefully it'll go away. Next day, still in pain, limping more. Hold on, kids. Hold on. Wait. I'll be right there. Pain. And the pain eventually escalated to, I think, day three or four and it was so bad that we're in the hotel room and, and I am yelling because the pain had just shot through the roof. And Tracy ends up coming into our room and she's like, here's a pillow. Can you just yell into that? The girls are getting a little nervous, you know. I've had a kidney stone. This far surpassed the kidney stone. And so I was up all night. Next day, got to find urgent care. Got to get something. What is going on with this foot? And what was it? You know, it was gout. And I got some shots. I got some painkillers with it. Still didn't take it away. So still just trying to walk on the side of my foot and just have some semblance of fun while being in pain. That lasted the remaining week of vacation and into the next week. But in all transparency, I was mad. I mean, angry with God. It felt like the straw on the camel's back had broken. Does God really care about me? I knew that many people had worse circumstances in their lives all around me and all around this world, but that was not on my mind. God knew about this vacation, right? God knew we don't do stuff like that. God knew all these things. And I felt like God really didn't care. That didn't matter to him. And so I felt like not talking to God. But I couldn't help but talk to God. And I told God I was mad. And I told him, I'm basically ready, I'm, I'm ready to give up. And so there was a standstill between me and God for a few days. 
And then after we were in Florida, we were going to travel up into South Carolina and visit some friends. Many of you know Janet Ewing and, and Mel and her kids. And so we went there. And we were only going to be there for a couple of nights. But while we were there, we were going to go to their church. And so I knew I was going to church. And I don't want to be a faker, but I'm upset. But we're going to go to church. And I thought like I had dealt with my heart enough you know, to be in church, and then we show up, and I see they've set things up for communion. Oh, seriously? (laughs) And communion was confronting me. I've got to, I am not right. I am not right with the Lord. And so I think in the midst of that, my heart was softened some. But I was still struggling and at some point later, I met with a friend of mine by the name of Thad, and he's a, a, like a spiritual director to me. And I told him where I was at, and he encouraged me to not, to not run from God in the midst of pain, but lean into God in the midst of pain and see what he has for you. He exhorted me to simply sing praises when you don't feel like it. Just sing, just sing, sing, sing. And... My heart was softened some more in the midst of that, and some more comfort took place. But then at another point in time, I was reading a devotional, and I think that this is when the final softening took place, and I was really comforted all the more. I'm reading this devotional on Job, and I saw how Job never received the answers to his questions. And yet, somehow... He was comforted. Instead of Job getting the answers, he actually got more of God, so to speak. Job was actually simply comforted in knowing who God is. And in knowing God, his questions were quenched. What I saw in the story of Job was essentially this, that when humbled... God is more satisfying than knowing the answers. So because of my own personal journey of God working through me even this year, I want to take some time to talk about Job today in the hopes that you too will find that God is more satisfying than knowing the answers. I hope that you too will be able to say, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say Lord, blessed be your name. And so as we're coming off Thanksgiving and entering into this Christmas season, that we truly would recognize that God, God himself, the giver, is greater than any gift. So with that, I want to give a backdrop to the story of Job. And I know many, most, maybe all of you know the story of Job, but I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. The first chapter of Job explains to us something that happens in the unseen realm. Satan asks for God's permission in order to test Job, and God gives permission. And then we read, in one day, Job loses most of his resources and all of his children die. Can you imagine Seriously, can you imagine that circumstance? As you read it in the story, sometimes the repetition comes in such a way when we read repeating phrases, we're like, okay, moving right along. But 
the repetition of this house fell down and a child dies. And then another person, another servant comes in. This happened to your place and your child died. And another person comes in and your child died and your child died and your child died and your child died. Think of the devastation that Job would be feeling in those moments. And then we read towards the end of chapter 1. Job makes this, this famous statement. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then Satan, not willing to be done yet, asks for more permission. Can I just, can I touch Job himself? And God gives him the permission. And Job undergoes savage health issues. Boils all over his body. He's scraping them off his tormented skin. And Job still expresses trust in the Lord. But that trust does not mean that Job was always happy with a big smile on his face. One theme throughout the entire book of Job, a major theme, is the idea of comfort. If if you want to mark even in your Bibles in the first chapter, you can write that theme of Job, longing for comfort. He's longing for some type of comfort in the midst of his confusion. Does he find comfort in his wife? No. Does he find comfort in his resources and children who are now dead? No, he doesn't find it. Where is he going to find comfort? Then his friends show up. Is he going to find comfort in his friends? Well, maybe for a time there's a little bit of hope because his friends are quiet for a week. You know, that's actually a really wise thing to do, just to be quiet for a while when a friend is hurting. Weep with those who weep, right? (laughs) But then Job's friends open their mouths. And it reminds me of Proverbs 17, 28 that says, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent. Because what what do the friends do? Through their words, they end up hurting Job even more. Have you ever been hurt by a friend and a friend's words? Anybody? Right? And maybe they don't mean it. It's just insensitivity. Now, we understand the Bible does say faithful are the wounds of a friend. But there's many times where it's not the faithful wounds. It's it's unwise words. And what his friends essentially say most of the time is, Job, if you just acknowledge the sin that's in your life, if you just repent then everything will be better. Or if you just acknowledge what, that this all happened because something bad was in your life, then, then you would be humble before the Lord. You wouldn't talk this way. And Job, in the midst of this, in response to his friends, is saying, there's more to this. I mean, I don't get it. I don't understand. But there, there's more to this. And so in the midst of Job's friends speaking, Job responds with his own questions Uh, His confidence that there's more to this. But at the same time, Job is also filled with lament and confusion. And Job even states accusations to the Lord. Job's emotions and his mind match his life. He's broken and in shambles. And while he's looking for comfort, he can't find it in his friends. And he doesn't seem to find it in God at this point. 
Where is God in all of this? And then God shows up. By the way, did you know that the longest first-person discourse of God is found in the book of Job? The longest first-person discourse of God is found in the book that highlights the question of suffering for humanity. I find that to be quite comforting, actually. God does not shy away from the problem of suffering. God does not run from us in the midst of pain. God comes to us and takes time with us in the midst of pain and suffering. He enters into it. And so God's discourse begins in chapter 38, and we see God saying this. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I think it's accurate to say that many people have found these words to be very insensitive of God. Have you ever thought that before? Like, Job is suffering. Job has lost all of his children, and he feels the pain in his body. And it sounds like God is saying to him off the bat, first words, Job, who do you think you are? But is that, is that actually what God is saying here? I don't think so. I actually think what God is doing here is he's welcoming Job to wrestle with him. Job has stated some of his heart, but God wants Job's full heart to come out. Everything needs to come to the light so Job can find healing. So God is calling Job to really engage with him in this. To me, it's like the angel of the Lord situation with Jacob. The angel of the Lord shows up. Now it's time to wrestle. It reminds me of myself a few months ago. I'm angry with the Lord. I didn't want to talk to him, but I had to talk to him. And the scriptures tell us, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks, right? How do I know what's in my heart unless I get it out there? And how is it going to be addressed if it's not out here? And so God is calling Job, get it out, Job. Get it out, and you'll be addressed. That's what I think God is doing here. Now, after God's discourse, we get Job's response. And I think Job's response reveals to us that what God was doing in all of these verses was actually very merciful and gracious. Because Job himself affirms it. And so if you have your Bibles, make sure you're in Job 42. And we're going to read those first six verses again. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise 
myself and repent in dust and ashes. In these words of Job, I think we discover that gem of a truth that I mentioned earlier. That when humbled, God is more satisfying than knowing the answers. And I want to I break apart this phrase and we'll start with the humility piece to help us to understand and even see from this text what this means, what this looks like. When humbled, we'll start there. When, when I think many times when people hear humility or they hear about being humbled, they think about that negatively because we don't like to be humbled. I think many times human beings, even Christians, might associate being humbled with being shamed. And so we have these feelings of being put down. But humility, if you're being humbled by God, that's actually elevated in the scriptures, right? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. To be humbled means that we are exalted by the Lord. It means that we're blessed by God. Now, where do we see humility from Job in this text? Look again at verse 6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, when you read it in your translation, you might be confused by its meaning. I mean, what does Job mean when he says he despises himself? Does God... Does God call human beings to absolutely hate everything about themselves? No, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, human beings, while marred by sin, were still created in the image of God, and that's good, right? And if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, the Bible also says you are God's workmanship, You could say you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. That's good, right? Right? Yeah. So we don't hate everything about ourselves. So what does Job mean when he says, I despise? That's such a strong word. I despise myself. Well, in the Hebrew, there's there's actually missing words. And so translators have to insert what they think Job is saying here. So translations have said, myself. I think maybe it would be better to be understood as I despise my ignorance or I despise how I acted in my ignorance. That that's what Job is talking about. He had taken God to the courtroom and he realizes he was wrong. So then we move on and he says, therefore, I despise myself and, what's the next word? Repent. Repent. In dust and ashes. Now that's a very intriguing word in the Hebrew. That word for repent. It's very intriguing because that word is related to the word comfort. And comfort is a major theme in the book of Job. Right? I mean, you're taking my word for it. But many of you have read, the word, read Job. He's looking for comfort. And so actually, I think when we put this together, I think that there might be a more helpful alternate translation to this verse, and that would be this. I despise my ignorance, and I'm comforted in dust and ashes. 
In other words, he found comfort in realizing that God is God and he is not. To apply that to us, we can rejoice in knowing the I am and in knowing we are the I am nots, right? God is all glorious, working in ways that are utterly mysterious, and he's always good and right. And I am even ignorant of those ways. I don't understand. I can't get that. But that's part of my nature. I was made from dust. Isn't that what Job said in the beginning? Naked I came from a mother's womb. Naked I shall return. He is saying, I came from the dust. I'm going to go back to the dust. And when I start questioning God and pulling him into my courtroom, I'm I'm getting out of the position that I was actually made to be in. And Job says, I've actually found comfort in just staying here. Just, I'm in dust. That's what I am. That's a beautiful reality. No longer is Job fighting to know the answers. He's resting. He's comforted in the confidence that God really is good and does what is right He doesn't have to figure things out. God will make it plain in his time. And so in humility, in in being reminded of his creation place, he finds rest. He finds rest in being humbled. Job sees as well, God is more satisfying than knowing the answers. I want to investigate that last phrase, knowing the answer a little bit more, to see that Job lays down his perceived rights to know the truth. I think this is really important for many of us to be reminded of because I think that we can tend to believe in the midst of trials and difficulties, we can tend to believe that if we just knew all the answers, if we just knew why something happened, then we would be content. Have you ever thought that way before? If I just knew, then that's not true. As we've already even seen. I think if we're searching searching for the answers, that's not necessarily wrong. But sometimes in our searching, we're putting God on trial. Sometimes when we're searching, for answers, we're not really trusting God. We're trusting in knowing details more than trusting God. Do you realize God is more concerned that you get more of him than he is concerned about giving you temporal answers to your immediate questions? Did you know that? What good is it if you gain all the answers and you lose your soul? Right? Job takes a few statements that either he or God made in the previous discourse and he reveals how they've affected his heart. He again reveals how simply knowing God silences the needs for his questions to be answered. So I want to move through these verses. Starting in verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So this is the statement of reality, the overarching truth. And this is a theological truth that I would imagine if you grew up in church, you learned this from a very young age. I learned it in song. Maybe you did too. 
God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but what? Fail, right? God can do anything. Then pain enters our life. Suffering happens around the globe. A man drives through the streets at a Christmas parade and ends up killing six people and injuring around 60 other individuals. If God can do anything, if God cannot be thwarted, then why is that happening? Isn't that the question that comes to our minds at times? Have you ever wondered that question? Job finally comes to a correct way of thinking, though. He doesn't say, since you can do anything, why this? Instead, he's clinging to realities that he knows that are true, despite not understanding all the answers to his questions. God can do anything. And I know whatever he does is good and right. Why? How do I know that? Look at verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So again, if you mark in your Bibles, you might want to mark off to the side of verse 3. Job is saying, I don't know everything. This is one of the statements of God is, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what God says to Job. And Job's response is saying, I don't understand everything. Which, by the way, if we don't understand everything, that can also mean we don't know the right questions to even ask. Right? This was a statement that God made to Job, and when Job was confronted with the reality of God, Job realizes, do I really think I know what's best? I know, I know I'm not the only one who has thought in my life that I know better than God. I'm confident, probably all of you, many of you, have thought the same thing at some point in time. I remember probably 20 years ago or so really struggling with the justice of God and, and, and what is just and unjust and why are these certain things happening and I don't think this is fair, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember one day coming to this realization, where did this sense of justice come from? Well, it came from God. And if God gave me this sense of justice, do I actually think that I have a better sense of justice than he does? If he's the one that gave it to me in the first place? No, I can't know more than he does because God has all knowledge. God has all awareness. So think about the situation with Job as well. Job has no idea what's going on in the unseen realm. He has no idea about Satan. He he doesn't know what the council, is what it's referred to in Job chapter 1, what the council sees, what the angel sees. Does God know what's going on? Absolutely. And so it is in our lives as well. There's a seen and there's an unseen realm. There are ramifications of everything that takes place in our lives. And God promises that he is weaving all things together for his glory and his children's eternal good. Do we really think 
that we have the mental capacity and the power to take care of everything. Do we really think we know enough so that God would actually say to us, you know what? I missed that. You're right. No. Now I know the hesitation with some who hear this. You might say, but what is happening is awful in this world. What's happening to me is awful. So is God just okay with sin and he's okay with the effects of the fall? Don't make the mistake of entering into those types of questions expecting the answer now. There is a mystery between God's eternal decrees. And that's the point that Job is making. I don't understand the mystery with God's eternal decrees and God also hates and abhors sin and someday will reverse the curse entirely. God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-good. He is the I am. We are the I am nots. We don't know everything. We don't understand it all. So if I don't understand it all, it's best to stay quiet and trust that the Lord will answer in his time and in his ways. Secondly, Job goes on into verse 4 and follow along with me again. He says, he quotes God, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Again, if you mark in your Bibles, I think you can put off to the side of verse 4, God does understand everything. God knows all the right questions to ask. This is, this is another scenario where God is speaking to Job. Job asks questions, and then God states now he's going to question Job. Now just keep in mind, with Job questioning God, Job is essentially saying maybe there's things God doesn't understand. Or I clearly don't understand, but I deserve to know these answers. But maybe God isn't aware of certain things. This is just too confusing. Have you ever wondered if God doesn't know about something in your life? I remember hearing the testimony of Johnny Erickson Tata when she talks about the day that her neck broke and she became a quadriplegic from that point on. She's been in a wheelchair for over 40 years. The long, I think the longest living person with quadriplegia. She said initially after that incident when she was in the hospital, her view of God was something like this. Her view of the incident was something like God was watching her and seeing her and her family as they were at the lake. And then something happened over in some other country. And there was a major need. And so God had to turn around. And that moment when God turned around, Johnny jumped into the lake and her head hit the bottom and it snapped her neck. And then God turned around and saw her at the bottom and said, oh no, I got to save her. She had a view of God. She couldn't make sense of a good God allowing something to happen. So maybe God just isn't aware of certain things sometimes. 
It's the only way that she could put things together. But then she came to realize over time that no, God knows all things. That's a great mystery, but it can also bring greater comfort. Maybe you feel the same way. You might not word it that way. You've been taught that God is sovereign, meaning he's all-powerful over all things. But you feel like God has just turned his head from your situation, thinking it wasn't as big of a deal. And I think this is somewhat the underlying mindset of Job, at least in certain places. Him questioning of God means he doesn't trust God knows all, or he doesn't have that confidence. So God lovingly puts the question back to Job. And so God asks all sorts of questions about the natural world. And what Job discovers is that there's many things about the natural world that he doesn't understand. And if he can't articulate answers about things that happen in the natural world, how in the world is he going to answer questions about things he can't see? Do you get that? There are many things in this natural world that we don't understand, right? I remember reading a book by... I don't even know what kind of scientist he was. And I gave up about halfway through because my brain exploded. But he was talking about gravity. And he, he went on and on about how gravity works and got into all these specifics and kept going and going and going and going and going and going and getting more intricate in his details. And I'm just like, you know what? If I jump off a building, I'm going to die. That's how gravity works, you know? I just trust that gravity works. And so do you. You came in here, you sat on chairs because the nature of this natural world is pretty trustworthy. You're going to sit on the chairs and that's how the chairs are going to work. But you don't know all the details of the force coming down upon the chair and then the earth and, 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 and how gravity comes all together and blah, blah, blah. All these specifics that people study their lives to know. And you just take it for granted. That's how it works. So I just trust. Right? And God is saying to Job, if you're going to trust these things, why can you not trust me? I am more trustworthy than this fallen created world. God is more trustworthy than this fallen created world. He is worthy of trust because God is good towards his children. All the time he's good. It may not make sense to us. It doesn't have to make sense to us. God is good to his children all the time. Can we have confidence in him? Yes. Knowing God is more satisfying, more satisfying than knowing the answers. And that's where Job gets into verse 5. I had heard you of the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. God is more satisfying. Now Job is not saying that he literally saw God with his eyes, but the idea is that he knows God more and better. He knows God more intimately. Or as some people put it in our day, that Job's knowledge went from a head knowledge to a greater heart knowledge. When this happens, or when this happened, Job moved from a, a, a discontentment and frustration to comfort. He's now comforted in the dust and in the ashes. That's why Job then says from that point, therefore, I despise myself and I am comforted in dust and ashes. 
he has been humbled. He's in the dust and ashes and finds that as one who is made from dust and dust that he shall return, he doesn't need to lift himself up. He doesn't need to take the place of God. He can't. He'll never figure all these things out in this fallen world. But he doesn't need to take God to court for that. Instead, he's man. God is God. God is gloriously good. God knows what is best and what is beautiful and what is right. So he's comforted in his position of dust, comforted in knowing God has it all handled. Ventura, we can be comforted this way too with God. I think of God's words in 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3 where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. Venture, that verse doesn't say he comforts us and takes away all our afflictions in this life. It says the afflictions come and he comforts us in the midst of all of it. And God is not just the God of some comfort. God is the God of all comfort. How do we know that God is the God of all comfort? How do we know that he is worthy to be trusted? Of course, we can take Job's answers and say, well, I don't know everything and God does know everything. But we even have greater confidence as those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, those of us who, who live after Jesus came to this earth, we have greater confidence that our God is a God of all comfort, don't we? We sing in the midst of this Christmas season, Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Right? Why? The scriptures say, comfort, comfort my people. We're comforted in the knowledge that God actually cares for human beings who are lost in their sins. Instead of God shunning all of humanity and spurning them all, God the Son, Jesus, came in the flesh into this world to not only take care of our temporal needs, but to take care of our eternal needs. To actually reconcile people to God so that we can, we can be forgiven Jesus came to this earth to live the life we could never live, to be the perfect representative. Jesus went to the cross and died the death that we deserve to die by taking the punishment our sins deserved. And Jesus rose from the dead, and now he calls all men everywhere to turn to him. And I hear Jesus' words in his ministry, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And by the way, I don't think that that's only, uh, that, that can only be understood in terms of salvation for the first time. I think of Peter when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting all your cares on him, because he cares for you. That idea of casting. I remember I, I heard somebody once say something like um, they were worried about something and then in prayer they gave it to the Lord 
And then the next day, they were talking to somebody else, and they were worrying about it again. And then that person said, hey, didn't you cast that yesterday? Why are you picking it back up again? But you know what? That's not how casting works. Any of you ever gone fishing? What do you do with casting? Our anxieties and our fears and our worries, as a part of our human experience, they don't just go away. They continue. And yet we continually cast. That is actually Peter's definition of humility. Humble yourselves by casting. Keep casting at the Lord's feet. Why? Because he cares for you. He loves you. He is the God of all comfort. And we have that confidence because of Jesus Christ. And someday, someday, we will see God. And we actually, I believe, will see God face to face, according to Revelation. And God will make all things known. Anything that we need to know, we'll know in heaven. What we do know is that we will be with God and God makes heaven heaven. And that's why heaven will be so glorious. We will be with him. So what we see here in Job's scenario is that, again, when humbled, God is more satisfying than knowing the answers. And even now as we enter the Christmas season, I pray that rehearsing and reminding yourself that Jesus came to the world will truly bring comfort and joy in all of our hearts and we will be filled with gratitude whether we experience pain or whether we experience pleasure. Ventura, let me give you some time to pray and respond to the Lord, to give thanks to God as the giver, and to give thanks to him, for him, more than even the gifts. And then in a moment, we'll conclude the service. So take some time to pray and respond. Ventura, please stand with me. After, after we conclude uh, in a moment, I am going to ask if, if uh, Kenneth can come up. I don't know if Tracy's still here or not. Doug, if you want to come up here too, and people can, Ventura, you can welcome them into the church family here. We have this up here. This was the plan for today, but I want to actually do something different, so we won't, we won't do this slide. We're going to sing the doxology together. We're going to praise God together. So just follow me with these words, and then we'll conclude with, with this song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy 